You're listening to KKUP Cupertino here at 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org. The next show is Out of Our Minds, second longest running poetry radio show in America. And here's some music to start us off with. Um, The music is, let's see, the band is Heroes Are Gang Leaders and the album is Highest Engines Near Near Higher Engineers. And the song is We, 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 The Remarkable. So here we go. We're talking about the poem We Real Cool by Gwendolyn Brooks. You understand the words are we real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. That's right. So look. Again, what does it mean to leave school? You ditch in school, all right? I got you. What does it mean to lurk late? Stay out all night, all all type of hours a night. What does it mean to strike straight? What does it mean? To fight? All right, okay. What does it mean to sing sin? Swearing, cussing, that's what you want to say. I'm going to walk with that one. I heard Mario say that he's um, singing sin, like sin, 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 sin. You don't mean like that, do you? No, it doesn't mean that. Gotcha. All right, I'm still waiting on zero because I'm talking.
At the golden shovel, Hakeem out of booty, six at the golden shovel, Carolyn Plum, Carolyn Rogers, four at the golden shovel, Sam Greenlee, four at the golden shovel, Blackstone, three at the golden shovel, Angela Jackson, two at the golden shovel, one at the golden shovel, Marshall Davis, one at the golden shovel. We had the golden shovel. Kelly over Ellis. Them. You, you do, do not, not hear it. You do not hear. 
the remarkable who mind the cookies and crunch them you do not you do not hear it you do not hear the remarkable who mind the cookies and crunch them you do not you do not you do not All right, you're listening to KKUP Cupertino here in 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org. The show is Out of Our Minds, the second longest-running poetry radio show in America, hosted by me, Rochelle Escamilla, a.k.a. Poetita, and I'm here tonight with Randall Horton. Randall, can we test your mic? Yes, how you doing? Ah, sounds perfect. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let me give you a little intro, all of you listeners out there. Uh, Randall Horton is the author of The Definition of Place and Lingua Franca of Ninth Street, both from Main Street Rag. His poetry prizes include the Gwendolyn Brooks Poetry Award and the Bia Gonzalez Prize for Poetry. He has an MFA from Chicago State University and a PhD from SUNY Albany. Uh, Horton is a Cave Canem Fellow, a member of the AFRE... Lation. <laughs> <laughs> it, it tricks me because it sounds like it's supposed to be uh, Spanish. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the Afrilation Poets and Associate Professor of English at the University of New Haven. He also serves as a senior editor for Willow Books and the editor-in-chief for Tidal Basin Review. And Randall, you're responsible for publishing my first book, so thank you. Oh, no problem. Well, thank you. You did the work. <laughs> I, I didn't pick the prize. <laughs> well, you, you and Heather Buchanan. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And, Pat, and, and Patrick, Patrick Rosal. Yeah, <laughs> who chose me. But anyway, welcome. Um, for those of you who don't know, Randall is here to come down to Hollister over in San Benito County. I know those of you who are in the Bay Area might not know where San Benito County is, but we're just one little county over from you, and you're going to be there tomorrow night reading mm-hmm. from your new book, right. Hook, a memoir so let's get talking so okay <laughs> yeah so what's hook about what's going well, on i mean you know i well hook is about a lot of things um but i guess the centerpiece um we sort of you know deal with or you know it centers around incarceration for a bit but it talk it's a little bit more than that because it talks about um the things that sort of led me to um incarceration prison because uh, I, ser- I spent five years in prison uh, before I mm. started this whole writing journey. Um, before that, you know, I had a whole another life um, that, you know, was just sort of filled with turmoil and um, other things because of decisions I made um, early on in my life and, the, you know, the, the road that I, I went down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Hook is sort of the nickname or the name that I had. That was the, that's what the, that was my name, Hook. That's what you that was your name. Yeah, and so um, you know that's where the title comes from. Um, and the idea of me writing this memoir, you know, I guess sort of popped up after I had done a couple of poetry collections and things like that. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to tell my story um, a little bit more expansively than I do in poetry at times. Mm. Uh, and I knew that you know that you know prose was going to be that sort of medium. Um, but I knew also that I needed to sort of spend some time, you know, let time sort of accrue. And because for me, I, I honestly believe when one begins to write about one's life, you have to un, you have to let those experiences soak in, and you have to sort of like process all of that. So it took me a minute to sort of process that. But also, the most important thing is, uh, I just you know, I made a decision to be a writer, you know, a while back. And a lot of times people ask me, well, why did you write a memoir? Well, I mean, I'm a writer. Mm. That's what I do. Right. I Not mean, just I, a poet. Right. You know, yeah. just a poet. And I'm, I'm a writer, yeah. too. And, and so I like to, you know, so that's part of, the, you know, the thing that drives me. Uh, my story, you know, the, the narrative of, uh, of the streets and incarceration uh, and what happens after just so happened to be my story to tell. Uh, but I tell a lot of stories, but this is the one I felt that it needed to be told uh, from a lot of different perspectives, just because of the way I have the book set up. Um, you know, I have these letters going back and forth right. to uh, a young woman named L. Mm. And so what that does for me is sort of like opens the conversation um, in terms of the narrative of women incarcerated. 
um, which we don't necessarily get a chance to hear a lot about um, when you talk about women and you talk about books and you talk about memoirs that sort of, you know, talk about all of that. That mm. that that narrative is sort of absent. I mean, you we hear the we hear the men's stories a lot, right? Um, and but not not so much on the other side. So for me, you know, me, you know, I wanted the memoir to be more than just about me too. Uh, I think that the, for me, you know, and that's just me personally, I think the best memoirs not only talk about the things that's going on in the author's life, but the other things that surround the author as well. There's there's so many narratives. Right. And so how can you sort of like bring all of those in as well and sort of make the conversation a little deeper? Right. So, you know, those are the things. Now, if you told me, you know, this was the book this is going to be the format of the book and all of these things. When I first started, I was mm. told you lying. <laughs> you know, no, I didn't see that. Cause it's um, very, it's very epistolary. It's, it's right. about, it's about, it's about letters. It's about, but that's, I mean, some of my family who's been incarcerated or so on, or, right. or I mean, that's letter the, writing, that's right, how that's, you communicate. That's the mode of communication. Um, and you, you know, um, now it's getting a little better with some email and all that. Um, but, you know, those things cost, uh, if you right. understand that. But letter writing, uh, if the epistolary form is a very interesting form anyway. Um, right. But it's, especially when people are incarcerated, that's, on, that's the thing that you have. I remember when I was incarcerated, I would write my parents all the time. Mm. Um, and that was our mode uh, because, you know, the phone calls was so much. It was, you know, I had yeah. to watch that. Um, and so, but one of the things that, you know, the epistolary form does is increase this intimacy, mm. you know, between two people. And I, you know, I'm not talking about intimacy, I'm talking about the intimacy of human interaction. Right. Between you and me, you're, I'm right. a reader. Exactly. And, um, you know, one of the things that Elle and I found out while we were going back and forth, um, that, you know, it sort of made us tell our, st- t- well, it made us tell our story. You know, you'll hear a lot of a story. One of the reasons I wanted to hear the feel in this book is, is well, because she has a ho- her own story to tell. And hopefully, you know, this will sort of springboard that into her own story. But, you know, we talked about some of these things in terms about, you know, the process of going back and forth and uh, writing these letters. You know, it becomes intense and it's almost like you're waiting for the next letter, you know, and you can't wait mm. to read it. Or you got to, you know, when you read it, you got to, you have to answer it then. Mm. Or, you know what I mean? It doesn't wait. Because you know you you know you know so these are the things your life begin to center around, especially when you're writing all the time, mm-hmm. you know. And that which is sort of like got me to thinking about that's what people actually used to do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's kind of funny too. It's like well, you know, that's what we used to do, right? Yeah, we uh, used to write letters to each other. <laughs> right. I, I went to a, I went to a shop, an antique shop in San Juan Batista. There's a bunch of them there. Anyway, uh-huh. I went in and, and there was this really awesome sort of like cupboard and there was a desk and I was like, what is that? And he's like, that that was a sideboard. Like this is what was in the kitchen so that the woman in between cooking and cleaning and everything else would sit down mm-hmm. or stand right. and write her letters out. Because right. that's uh, what we did. We yeah, wrote letters we wrote to each other. Letters. And so that began me, you know, um, I because. I thought this was going to be two different projects. Uh, I was working on the memoir, uh, trying to figure out form and shape. And, you know, I, I have many beginnings and ends and false starts and begin and ends. And you always think you got something and then you realize you don't have what you think you have. And mm. you have to go back to the drawing board. Um, but at the same time, I was working on this. Um, a friend of mine had gotten, incarcer- L had gotten incarcerated um, after uh, we were in school together. Um, and I was getting a Ph.D. and she was coming back to get a a bachelor's mm. but we had both been incarcerated um and she told me something one day that stood that, that stayed with me you know we were tutoring i uh, worked in a tutoring center uh, tutoring um yeah and so she you know she was talking one day and she was like you've been to prison haven't you mm. i was like well how do you know that because i never i didn't tell her <laughs> yeah. i didn't tell her anything. Yeah. <laughs> she says the way you carry your shoulders oh i was like whoa that's crazy. And she said, "I've been there too." I was like, crazy. "Whoa, whoa!" So it's that other that other thing that we don't that people don't necessarily talk about that we sort of bonded over uh, and those experiences, and um, which when she ended up getting incarcerated on some other stuff uh, through no fault of her own, kind of, uh, I was sort of there, and she was an English major, and so. She loved literature. So we begin to discourse on all of these, like, you know, books and other mm. things and constructions and gender and sexuality, mm. and da da da. Mm-hmm. And it just became, you know, this whole 
experience. And so for me, you know, I begin to think about how can, you know, one use these experiences uh, when I'm talking about my memoir and then sort of begin to plan, begin to play around with the idea of a book within a book or a book with, you know, multiple narratives. Um, mm. So it goes back and forth in time, flashes back and forth. Um, I just didn't want it to be, I didn't want my memoir to be okay where well, I started here and I left there. I, I was born. <laughs> <laughs> I was born and then my so, mom had So, you know, me. I guess part of it is <laughs> bringing a poet's mentality. That's right. what I'm getting at. The, you know, as a poet and, you know, as you know, as a poet, we we tend to think differently and, you know, we sometimes we're disjointed and sometimes... Yes. We, you know, and so there's always deeper meanings and all of those things. So I, be, you know, and so being a poet and having worked, having had three books of poetry, really helped me to sort of see this project to the end. Uh, so I, you know, I definitely, you know, don't think that I could have written this book without writing the other books first. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I noticed that a lot of um, successful novelists and successful memoirists. Uh, started off as poets. I mean, they, their first books are poetry. Like I think of Luis Alberto Urea, who mm -hmm. who wrote Into the Beautiful North, which is one of my favorite books in the whole world. I mean, his first work was a collection of poems and photography of like cholos. Um, so it's it's you know, well, you it's, know it's Luis, really I don't know if you know Luis Edrich Edrich, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, she's uh, I want to say she's Native. Yeah, Native American. He has mm. a book tracks. Oh, I love her uh, novel tracks. Oh, really. Oh my I'm gonna god! Look it up. You gotta look it up. I'm yeah. gonna look it up. Well, she started off as a poet. She and she's a she's a fiction, mostly fiction writer now. Uh, pro, yeah. you know, but she has like, and I didn't really realize that until I read her books and I went back and I was like, oh, uh, where are these books they are? start, yeah. And you know, and that's really funny. Um, it's it's very interesting. But do you want to uh, find a spot to give us a little a little uh, <laughs> teaser, a little teaser? Hmm. How much? Let me say. I can do a couple of them. Yeah. Um, I I like to start with um I guess the opening piece because Hook doesn't exist. Mm. I guess that kind of gives people a sort of foreshadowing of things to come. Okay. In the book. Um I mean, thank you for coming all the way out here by the way. Thank <laughs> you so much. I mean, I know you're on your way to LA to, to AWP. <laughs> but it's, so, you, know, you know, I appreciate, you know, having the opportunity to come out here. I try to you know, yeah. you only get so many books and you only get so many opportunities to do things. And so one of the things I learned, um, you know, by doing this is like the relationships um, are invaluable and to meet like minded people. And yeah, because, you know, it's our community, man. You know what I mean? It is. Yeah, it is. So. All right. So this is Randall Horton reading from because book. Hook doesn't exist. <laughs> 2009 Harlem, New York. Answer the phone at 10 p.m. Offer a reserved hello on a nebulous night filled with palace snow in Harlem. Respond with okay. Listen. Be attentive when you learn he died in the hail of gunfire at the intersection of Minnesota Avenue and East Capitol Street in the nation's capital. After thinking that's messed up, thank your old college roommate for calling. Ignore that he greeted you as Hook, the nickname you went by in the streets. Hang up. You can and you can't believe the truth simultaneously. Write D-I-S-C-O in your leather journal. Maybe this will immortalize the image. You will never forget him, but you have already forgotten Hook. Before the blackbird's echoes bangs against your windowsill, wake up. Go directly to the mahogany desk between two windows. Sit in the brown swivel chair. Stare at the building opposite your building. Rearrange papers that don't need rearranging twice. Open your journal to the name written last night. Disco. Remember the cell doors opening after serving 18 months for three felonies in Fairfax County Adult Detention Center. Five hours after that release, meet Disco Willing and ATM through your basement on a handcart. Out of the wall with metal chain and pickup truck, he had pulled the money machine. He did that. This is your introduction. Turn on the computer. Type Theodore Blanford in the search box. Click the magnifying glass. Expect to be surprised even though you know what the results will bring. Don't be surprised when you scroll to Maryland devil homicide suspect shot killed in D.C. 
One lone bird outside your window flies backwards at an indeterminate rate of speed while the world moves forward. The bird is red. Look for balance in the oddity. Note that Dama homicide is five syllables, five deliberate pauses for ah. Remember you knew the suspect shooter killer. Suspend court in your imagination. Add four indeterminate words to formulate the phrase whole court in the streets. This is how he would die, holding court in the streets. Prophetic. After reading that the now deceased wife had wanted a divorce, deduced it was because of drugs. Visualize the wife and sister just before death and their devil wife. Try to make sense of blood spilled on the carpet. The red is deafening scream. Wait for the buzzer to stop because someone rang the wrong buzzer. There's always an echo after the buzzing. Even after it buzzes again, don't answer it. It is not for you. Keep reading the online article, but more specifically the phrases forcible entry and protective order. Acknowledge that your friend was a suspect in his first wife murder too. A dead body in the trunk. Two days later, while driving to school to teach, called short man because it takes that long to find someone to talk about tragedy. Tell short man who is a barber and has 10 years behind razor wire tucked in his memory what happened. Agree in unison that prison will turn the brain into a hum. Agree again that prison taught you to be a better criminal, though you both digress. Both of you understand the term anomaly, but admit that disco was a composite of many men who never learned to be a man. You would then ask the question for the first time, why? Return back home from New Haven before rush hour traffic begins to bottleneck the Cross County Parkway. Dig through the closet for the first version of your memoir. Disco rolled the safe out of the department store. The first lines of the paragraph read, Go to the next page where he loves to pull the trigger of a gun more than he loves touching the torso of a woman. Flip to the page where he and his sister distribute lead bullets through the windshield and the impressions of circular holes when the discarded lead pierces the glass are swift and pronounced. The body is a question mark. He tried to run over the wife with his truck and then threatened her with a claw hammer. She told the police. Ask yourself why this sign didn't signify violence. What theory would Ferdinand de Saussure classify this under? Put the manuscript back in the closet. Don't beat yourself up because you knew he was a killer and said nothing to nobody. Forget the double negative your mom would correct you on. And tell yourself it's nature versus nurture. Justify your silence in saying that the world you once lived in was filled with silence and mayhem. That's why they called you Hook. Don't block all your lords. Your silence will not protect you from your mind. Pretend this is penance. Wake up the next morning. Go back to the computer. Press any key to erase the black screen. Ignore the blackbirds outside your window while telling yourself this is the last time. You need to forget, but before you do one more search, click inmate violent deaths in the news. A flood of blackbirds appear suspended in animation at the top right corner of the webpage. Ignore them, but then don't. Tell yourself this is not calm, Edgar Allan Poe style. He did not want her to leave. <laughs> she wanted him to go. Said he needed treatment. Think back to 12-step literature that cautions about the 13th step. Sexual fraternization with people inside the circle. Feel confident in assuming she was a recovering addict and understood addictive behavior. Two addicts don't make a right. Tell yourself this. Read about the interaction with police who failed to notice the inevitable. Admit the judicial system is failing to protect women. I am victim was tattooed on her forehead, yet she remained invisible to the patriarchs, the ones sworn to protect and serve. Ask yourself, does his death matter more than the victim's death. Convince yourself the race never stops running, that memory will eat you alive. Say, I am a changed man, but no one will hear you. Get back in the bed, pull the covers over your face, remember the dream, forget Hook, 
wake up tomorrow and feel guilty again. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino here in 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org. Um, I'm Rochelle Escamilla, a.k.a. Botita, and this is Out of Our Minds, second longest running poetry radio show in America. Um, I want to do a quick community calendar here tonight. Um, so tomorrow night in Hollister at 7.30 p.m. at Art Space in downtown, it's going to be a night of music, local art, and readings featuring Randall Horton, who you're listening to tonight. Um, and he's the author of the new book, Hook, a Memoir. Um, tomorrow night, we're going to have Brewery 25. We'll be serving one of their San Benito County local brews. Uh, Joey and George will be playing some improvisational guitar for the crowd. Philip Ray Orabuena, Carlos Munoz, and Casey Jasmine will be there with a couple of um, pieces of art. Um, so that's tomorrow night, 7.30 at Art Space in Hollister. And I want to thank everyone in the community. I want to thank KKUP for being just an awesome place. You know, we're listener-supported. We don't get any grant money. We don't get any corporate money. We don't get any money. Our, all of us are here basically on a volunteer basis. We run the station 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year on volunteer time. And because of you, you listen and you love us. So if you're listening on the radio, um, 
you know, on 91.5, then give us a call here at 408-260-2999 if you want to become a member. If you're listening on kkup.org, go ahead and click and become a member and help us out and support this awesome radio station. All right, so we're back with Randall Horton, who's talking about his book, Hook a Memoir. So one of the things, Randall, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, everyone says, or the, the blurb on your book says that you unapologetically talk about this time that you spent in prison. Yeah. Well, that and before, too. So <laughs> unapologetically. Unapologetically. I think, yeah. What uh, does that mean? I mean, what does that well, mean? Well, I mean, I don't, hold, I don't have any filters. Um, and I think um, was just, I got an email from someone today um, who read the book, and um, she went right to a quote um, from one of the letters that um, that goes on between L, um, whose real name is Linda Perez. I need to get make sure that people understand that that she has that her name is Linda Perez, but she goes by L in the book because at the time she was still incarcerated and she didn't know if she wanted her name right to appear in the book. Um, but um. Yeah, the, the you know the thing you the know. The woman emailed you. Huh? The woman emailed you. Right. Yeah. The woman emailed me, and so she was talking about um L, and how she you know the comp you know the the sort of the dialogue between us sort of forces, you know the moments when I'm not being you know as truthful or forthcoming as I can. <laughs> You know, she calls me out, and so <laughs> I have to, you know, so I have to do that. Yeah. Uh, so when I say that, you know, unapologetically, we go back and forth. Uh, so that and that and that that let me know that you know when I in the process of doing this that I have to go to spaces that um, that are uncomfortable, embarrassing, uh, but it is the life that I'm trying to talk about. And if and if the purpose of you know the memoir is um, some some sort of lesson, some sort of trajectory from one place to another, then you can't sugarcoat that place where you start from. It can't be like, oh, it was this, and, you know, you have to, the ugly too, it's the ugly. And that's part of it on, when they say unapologetic, because I, you know, I do talk about a lot of ugly things that I would probably much rather people didn't know. <laughs> well, <they're>, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I say I know I say that it's kind of like uh, you know, it's, but it's in the book now, but Randall. For uh, me, you know, I understood that those. If I'm going to be the person I am today, this person who stands before you with seven felony convictions, like the the only person in the United States that's tenured with seven felonies. I mean, that's true. It's not you know nothing but what it is. I don't you know I'm not necessarily proud of it, but in a way, I am because. Um, I know how hard it is when one gets out uh, of prison and the road back. The recidivism um, rate is so high, and I understand that. So when I go in front of young people, and this is you know the, sort of the crux of my work, I teach and all this other stuff, but I do a right. lot of stuff with young people, uh, especially with people you know kids that risk some kids that have seen things that you know like you know a lot of kids don't see. I, I work with those kids, uh, and. You know, when I come in and tell my story, they ha- they're going to listen because, you know, they can a lot of times they can relate or they can identify with because uh, I've been in situations where I've seen them eat people alive, like people who are trying to do good. Right. And then, you know, but they <laughs> it's not their fault. It's just that they don't know their story. Like, you know, and so when I come and I start talking, they're they going to shut up. <laughs> because hey, you know, okay, I hear your story, but you know, and I start telling the mom like, so what's your problem? Right. I got seven thousand. You got a little problem right now. I got seven. Yeah. How did I make it? And how am I continuing to make it? So. But how did you? How did you make it? I, I mean, mean, come you know, on. I mean, I mean, this is this is <laughs> right. I we mean, we hear it all the time. We hear it all the time that no, but like people who make it out. And even when I was teaching at the juvenile hall in Hollister, mm-hmm. I mean, the kids would come back in. It was a revolving door. It's a revolving door. It was a revolving door for me for years. I mean, well, not prison and incarceration, but mm. the idea of trying to get my life together, making these bad choices, going because you know, going from you know the drugs and back and forth, um, and so. I think, you know, it's hard to say when does one get it. Mm. Um, but there has to be a time, you know, you know, when you sort of hit bottom. 
I guess for me, you know, I didn't have these people or these images in my face telling me, you know, to slow down either. Right. That was the thing. Wow. Um, no one told me, you know, you got to realize, you know, I came of age in the 80s, you know, doing and in D.C., mm. like you say, doing the Reagan era, doing those laws. So you come, we're coming out of the 70s into the 80s. And so, wow. I, you know, the drug of choice then was definitely cocaine. Uh, powder and so you know it became this sort of recreation of fun drug and mm. just coming to college and people experimenting but you know what happens is you know that you know becomes becomes a little deeper and you know um people are starting getting addicted and then you have the appearance of freebase um and then they start rocking up and selling it's a whole narrative with that and that's part of what i want this book to do too is sort of chrono you know to, to sort of like um chronicle those things that happened like you know the Reagan era is real like the you know the war on drugs was real the things that happened those were real the way people uh you know the, the pipeline from South America you know through the way stations in the loop of the Bahamas to, to Miami those things were real right you know and you know I sort of saw those things firsthand and so that's part of it as well um but getting back to like sort of how did I sort of got out of I mean one of the things is I was tired uh but for me um, and I had done everything, you know, I've been homeless and, you know, I've slept in abandoned buildings and cars. I mean, I've done, I've, I've done, all, like say three, six, that did a seven twenty. <laughs> 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 like I went around everywhere. I mean, you know, I didn't leave no stone unturned. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> There's a lot of stones out there. Right, 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 right. So, you know, by the time um, it was for me, you know, I can tell you, I can remember the exact moment for me was um, I had, you know, I received my time and, um, you know, I had like 15 years mm. and um, I had to file what they call a motion for reconsideration of my sentence in Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, Maryland is one of the few states that you can do that. Oh, everyone doesn't do that. And so I mm. thought, so after five years, it just brought me back. Wow. Yeah. And so I had, a, I had a few people that was instrumental, Bonnie Boswell, uh, who works for the Department of Health and Human Services in Montgomery County, Maryland, and Pat Parker, uh, who was, uh, who led a group therapy session um, in, in uh, the unit I was in. Um, and they were instrumental in getting me back. Um, and so, you know, we had a whole, you know, plan outline, you know, my, I, you know, the, the game plan was to, to be released and to go to this two year program in North Carolina mm. called tr tr uh, Troza Tri triangle residential options for substance abuse is a two year intensive program. Right. Mm. And so when I, they brought me, they took, they came upstate in Hagerstown, Maryland, brought me back to Montgomery County to appear before the judge. Um, and never forget my father came up from Alabama, from originally from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh huh. And um, my father came up um, after we had been estranged for a while. Um, and it was one of the most interesting courtroom scenes that I have ever witnessed or been a part of. Um, you know, the whole thing was so surreal. But then, uh, you know, my father sort of got who was my character witness. It wasn't a trial. It was most of a character witness. And, and he began to sort of outline and, the upbringing of me as a kid in the third person. Like he was talking about this person that I thought I knew. Huh. It was crazy. Um, and he held court for like almost 25 minutes in wow. the whole courtroom. Wow. And when I say the whole courtroom was quiet, the whole courtroom was quiet. We had people, you know, in the, in the gallery. My Man, my lawyer was crying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, she... <laughs> I, mean, she, I look over, she balling. <laughs> I'm balling. <laughs> Everybody balling. I'm thinking, I don't know the judge might be balling. <laughs> it was like it was like the one. It was like one of the most. I've never. I mean, I, to be a part of that was so powerful. But it was just so. It was so humbling to me to 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 see how someone could love someone that much in the face of everything that they've done to throw their love away. Mm. And to just go out there like that and, and cry and put their life before the judge and just give this whole eloquent speech um, about the person who I could be. Right. So when you get that, man. Um, so how do you not change, I guess? How do you not? You can't be human, man. Um, for me, and so that's what I tell I tell parents of uh, people who have kids all the time. You have to give your kids something to remember. Mm. 
whether they're going to get, you don't know when they're going to get it. Right. But he, they, you know, my, you know, at some point my parents gave me things to remember. And at the time when I needed to, to call on those, you know, those were the things that sort of brought me through. Um, you know, that, that gave me the resolve when I got out to, you know, to, to get my life together. Cause I went right back to DC and you know, I was, they didn't want me to go back to DC. I went mm. back to my old home grounds for me. I needed to conquer the beasts before I moved on. It's just how I'm built. I don't, I wouldn't suggest that for everybody, but I knew me. Um, and I knew why I stayed in DC for 30 years. Uh, right. I know what kept me there. And in order for me to leave and go on with the rest of my life, I had to, I had to conquer that. So I went right back to DC. Um, and you know, that's when I began this, you know, understanding the road because, you know, it wasn't going to be easy. You know, um, I talk about Howard university, the HBCU, um, which I had gone to and attended, um, and, and expected to be admitted as a old student returning because I didn't leave under any, you know, academic stuff, but right. they didn't accept me back in because of my felony convictions. Which was very interesting, you know, because I began to like, well, you know, I mean, don't, no one owes me anything. No. You know, you know, but I do, you know, but me, I'm looking at it in terms of if you're a historically black college and university, A, and then B, you know that you work with, you you dealing with a population or you serve a population that um, that has disproportionate numbers that are incarcerated year by year, and you understand that. Then what's and, the problem? And what you do don't. You, ac- I mean, you don't accept them when they come back that's, out. Yeah, that's the. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I that's, mean, that's the crazy. only. Pr- I mean, I've I had that a couple of times. I had a a scholar resident position at another university, HBCU, uh, and the provost revoked my contract after I told you know I told everybody you know people knew at this point everybody you know I my 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 um my life has been well chronicled so right. I don't hide from anything you know right? what I, mean, I you mean, get what you get and <laughs> everybody was cool with it and the provost was like no we just don't want you here so that's the way it goes so that's the way it goes so but it was been always it was a really eye opening experience in that you can't let anyone deter your dream and so I could have said oh I'm not getting how boom uh, Mm. But for me, I understood that it was either now or never uh, in terms of I need to continue keeping on. So I got in the University of District of Columbia, ended up getting my, my degree and moved on. You know what I mean? So And yeah. and and created an avenue for, uh, you know, everyone else to, you know, you, you're a trailblazer. I try I, to be. <laughs> I try to. I mean, be. I mean you're you know, trail, we, I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, not only with this book, uh, the the way that you're openly talking about the kind of issues that we need to have mm-hmm. spoken about, but also through the, your work with uh, Heather Buchanan at Willow Books, right. providing a space where writers of color can compete with each other right. and and push each other push forward. Push each other. I mean, a community of writers that you know, uh, a a say of of. You know, a safe space where one can write and you don't have to worry about, you know, what, uh, how, if we choose you, that means we dig in your aesthetic and we're giving you the latitude to, to grow your aesthetic, not to change it, uh, not, nothing like that. Um, and that's the, for me, you know, the whole idea of editorship uh, and working in the press, like the art of the publisher, author relation, and the editor relationship is so dead uh, you know people <laughs> don't take the time to find people people don't take the time to do things you almost have to come in you know picture perfect ready and mm-hmm. i get it sometimes with the um um with the prizes and things like that because that's what you know i get it but everyone is can't win a prize no you know and that doesn't mean that your book is not good or not because i've been on too many compa- i've been on too many judges panels and too many committees that pick grants and arts and prizes and no that sometimes, you know, there are very there are a lot of deserving pieces that never get mentioned ever, and so I think you know that and that would you know when I, once I saw that, it gave it freed me up too, right. to like, like I'm not going to please everybody, but I have to do my thing. You see right. what I'm saying? I have to do my thing, but more so than that, um, you know, and I've seen it happen with our authors. Um, that once they get that avenue to grow, they go on to do other other good things, and that's really the whole issue with Willow Books. Or the whole you know mission is to provide a place for you to grow and to wherever you want to go. That's mm-hmm. fine, 
you know, but we just want you to know at Willows that there's a home and that's what it's for. Right. And but but Hook the Memoir is not published by Willow Books. Right. It's, it's published pub by published by Augury Books. Um it was submit I submitted it doing um an open submission period a couple of years ago. Mm. Trying to find a publisher for it. Even with me. You know, I would have loved for Willow Books to do my book. Um not saying Augury's good, Augury's great. Mm. I just love Willows. You know, yeah, I, I mean I, I keep saying I wish I I, I uh, wish that I could be on the pr I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about how to do it. <laughs> I just can't figure it out. <laughs> I would love, and you can talk to Heather about this. I told her, I was like, love, I would, I really would have loved for them to do it. Um, but, I mean, Argy did a good, great job. Um, Kate Angus um, is my editor, um, and she was a really great editor. Um, she saw a lot of things that I couldn't see. Um, but it was real interesting with this book. I mean, I shopped at a lot of places. I mean, I, you know, Asians <laughs> yeah. had it. Well, yeah. You That's know, I've, I've, I've gotten, you know, I've, you know, you wouldn't be saying the, in the, the things that I would get back. Oh, it's such great writing. We love it. But. But we don't know how to market you. Because uh, I'm not the juvenile. I'm not going to be the poster child for juvenile justice. Right. I'm not going to, you know, um, you can't. You got to be yourself. Right, you right, right, right. You. And you can't put me in a box and say we're going to put you as this spokesperson for this because of the things that you've done. I mean, my book is a little different. It's a little edgy. It's a little well. It's avant-garde. It has it has a lot of the spin that we're listening to in the music that you also create, which is heroes are gang leaders, um, right. and and that kind of stuff. Um, so it has right. this aesthetic that sort of pushes yeah. forward and is far more contemporary. Right. Um, but you know what? We've got ten minutes left of the show, and I want the listeners to be able to hear something else. Do you have anything else to read? Uh, let me do one letter to L. That's okay. The, because, and I think we talked about some of the things we talk about. We talk about um, women. We talk about believing. We talk about gender. We talk about race constructions. And I think, and that's that's the that's the most that's the thing I'm most proud of, or in this book, in terms of that is like the idea of um, the, the 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 you know sort of the things that we have that we go back and forth with. So here we go. All right. Go ahead. It's called, it's the, the second session, it's called Louder Than All Sound Ever Created. And so she's just written me and told me that she's incarcerated, and um, we've gone through a couple letters. Um, and the last thing that she leaved off with is talking about, um, you know, women and believing in why it's so hard for women sometimes. And so here's my answer. Dear L. We script our lives on reaction rather than action, meaning daily life is always in response to a reply to a command or a demand. The world uses us in that way, the after sound of oppression. We know this maxim, yet we become willing participants in our own commodification. The world does this, holds us down. Then too, I've been thinking about the question you posed with regard to women and believing. Perhaps images in how we as a society nurture young women creates this insecurity. The American dream choked little girls in so much as not all of them would be able to live up to ideal beauty as constructed by benefactors of the dominant narrative, those who dictate the ebb and flow of how we live. Beauty is a dangerous thing. And to understand brown and black women historically bear the weight of civilization in addition to their own weight, which can be daunting at times. But more than that, the male plays a role in this insecurity, especially in these so-called streets, by his rejection of the woman as equal counterpart and anything other than sexual object. We just want to love and have some warm body loves us back. Objectification is a delicate balance. In other words, I saw this objectification play out with men who dominated women to the point they broke their spirits and stole their sound. The women couldn't speak of their own oppression because they possessed no language to express the unimaginable, reminding me of pudding and the street walk of sunshine. You see, sunshine adored pudding so much she strolled around Logan Circle in D.C. every night, selling the one commodity she knew well, herself. Here's the oxymoron. Sunshine never saw the light. Darkness choked her to death. She never got to understand we are the shadows in the dark Tony Morrison imagines. Our sound originates from the breaking of sound. And then again, like life, 
Language is only the beginning, and perhaps in this depth too comes a new beginning, a new language. L. Tonight I am imagining with exact description the six by nine cell you sleep in in all this isolation because this is something memory lets me reinvent. The gray cinder block, the dull silver glow from the metal toilet. I have been thinking long and hard with regard to confinement and the bordering of color and how we as a society imprison ourselves within the complexity of skin as if human survival depends on this one specific thing. Of course, I could make a conscious effort to avoid color or not invade your personal space when trying to make a parallelism. But history can be unforgiving in how the past reconstructs the future, whether we acknowledge it or not. For some reason, I feel our histories and futures intersect in so much as we come from the same memory. In other words, I, I have inhabited the cell door clang, and I can't escape the image of the pinstripe inmate constructed. There it is, that word construct, or construction, which is another word for confinement on someone else's terms, a sort of deliberate scaffolding. You see, if I could go back to that initial moment after the formulation of Earth, I'm talking about the first glorious sunrise after the Big Bang. Have you ever wondered what that feeling could have been like? In the beginning, a delayed oceanic swirl like blue, foilish like green, color had not begun. If only someone could have stopped progress at that precise moment. Consider the empirical evidence a two-year-old boy in an apartment eight blocks from the detonation to kill four little girls in the church basement. All the girls wanted was to sing and somebody stole their little light of mine. The picture of baby Jesus knocked off the hook, the apartment rattling from the detonation. I heard and felt that echo, a two-year-old boy being constructed to understand black and white to choose a side. I was a construction before I came of age. For so long, all I could think about was vanishing from prison, not realizing I was in prison before incarceration, and I still languish behind invisible bars. Thank you so much. All right. Well, Randall Horton, author of Hook, a memoir, and um, he's going to be in Hollister tomorrow night reading live in Hollister. So if you want more information, you can definitely find that information um, <laughs> on Facebook, um, lots of different places. Uh, you can give us a call at the studio. I'm going to be here for the next uh, 20 minutes or so getting the archive set up. So that's uh, 408-260-2999 and 831-255-2999. Thank you, Randall, for being in the house tonight. And Thank I, you. Yeah. And I'm going to finish off with uh, the music we started, which is Heroes Are Gang Leaders. The album is Highest Engines Near, Near Higher Engineers. So here we go. Mm -hmm. 